the Spirit of Jazz podcast, where music dances with mystery, with your hosts, Bill Carter and Jeff Kellum. Welcome to the Spirit of Jazz podcast. This is Bill Carter. And I am the Ed McMahon of this program, Jeff Kellum, a cultural illusion that is probably way beyond many of our listeners. <laughs> Bill, a couple of years ago, I interviewed you on our local television program about the spirituality of jazz, and we centered on the Psalms. And I'd kind of like to revisit that a little bit today. And we look at the Psalms as being so full of joy and then lament, sorrow, mm -hmm. anger all the different feelings and right there in the middle of the bible mm -hmm. you've done a number of psalm settings in fact you have a two cd set of psalms with the presby bop quartet uh, songs without words were you reading the psalms as a kid and, and all this oh, yeah. time yeah well um just so our, our listeners are kind of on the same level we are the the psalms are a collection of 150 prayers and songs. They're in the middle of the Bible. And when I was a kid, I had to memorize a couple of them to get my third grade Bible in church. I Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise. That was really all I paid attention to. When I was a Boy Scout as a teenager, and we do a little mountain climbing in the Adirondacks, I look to the hills from where does my help come, Psalm 121. I kind of like that one. Frankly, even though I went off to uh, train to be a Presbyterian minister and we had classes in Bible and such, I didn't really engage with all of them. Mm -hmm. What happened was in 2006, I took a sabbatical from my church work and uh, took two months to really engage in the Psalms in depth and um, had done a little reading and researching. There were some things that kind of intrigued me. Uh, one was Benedictine monasteries sing through the Psalms in a given week. They have a chart and maybe six, seven short worship services every day, starting early, early, early in the morning. They'll work through in a week. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of good, you know, get the termites out of my soul, go spend a little time in the quiet and have the quiet punctured and punctuated by psalm singing. It was kind of a hoot because the abbot of the monastery, which is a monastery of Christ in the desert in northern New Mexico, they would come out, you know, first thing in the morning. And, you know, there I am. I'm pilgrim and kind of a tourist. And I'm sitting there like yawning. And so would the brothers. The, the monks would come out and yawning. One guy's kind of scratching himself. It would kind of quiet down, and then he would take his staff and bang it on once on the stone floor, calling them to attention. They would all stand up, and then he would reach over to a Casio keyboard, battery-powered, and hit a note, and then they would start intoning. And it was kind of classical chant. And I discovered, of course, and I mentioned it to the abbot a little later in the week, uh, you guys are all tenors. <laughs> and in the morning, I definitely am not. Um, right. So that was that was one of the experiences. And then the other, someone slipped me an article about a faculty member from Yale named Willie Ruff, who had come across kind of a connection between the psalm singing of the Outer Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, off the left shoulder of Scotland, and uh, the beginning of rhythm and blues and gospel music and jazz 
in the Delta of the U.S. And I thought, what? <laughs> and and they said that there were still some folk in the Hebrides Islands who were chanting the Psalms in Gaelic. And this was the primary basis of their hymn singing. And they were unaccompanied. It was thought that the human voice is the purest voice. We don't do instruments here, which is kind of a strange, curious, ultra-Protestant perspective. And they would have a presenter, some guy named Angus and Mutton Chop Sideburns, who would come chant out the melody line, and everybody else would kind of echo in. Yeah. And I said, wouldn't it be kind of fun to to do this? And so I convinced my wife we'd fly over to Scotland, and for at least three days, we'd go to Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis, and we'd hear this. Do you want to hear a little bit of that music? Sure, you bet. Okay, this is the congregation of the Back Free Presbyterian Church, a few miles out of Stornoway and the Isle of Lewis. This is haunting music. I mean, they're, they're singing from the bottom of their bellies. I mean, this is uh, drenched, and they slow down the experience, and they're only singing two or three verses, and they're singing uh, seated, and they're they're not harmonizing in any way unless it is by accident. And I thought, what is this pathos? This is this is like the blues. Uh, this is this is deep. Yeah. And there's a link then between the music you heard there and deep South Louisiana. Well, that's right. And, and just real quick, what happened, the peat farmers of Scotland came to the shores of North Carolina. In time, slaves were brought over from Western Africa, and these uh, Presbyterians largely thought it was their responsibility to educate the Africans in the gospel. But, you know, to keep everybody distinct from one another, they built double-decker churches. A back door would have a stairwell to a hidden balcony where the African slaves would be. And the African folk would come with their pentatonic melodies and their sense of call and response. And the Scots would be singing in Gaelic, and they would be singing call and response. And in time, there was this musical melding that happened. And as African folk became, you know, native then to America, as the generations passed and moved maybe down to the Delta, there was a connection. So, Willie Ruff, you can't make a, a living playing French horn in jazz for the most part, so he took up the bass. He worked for a while with Dizzy Gillespie, and he remembers one time Dizzy said, all my people spoke Gaelic. Wow. And it's like, What? And so he he takes a break from teaching at Yale, and he goes down to his hometown in Alabama, stops at the gas station, says, is there a catfish supper I can go to? I mean, they don't do catfish suppers in New Haven, Connecticut. And the guy said, yeah, there's this little Presbyterian church down here. So he went down on the Sunday. He said, you're going to have to listen to a little preaching. He went down there, 
And there was an instant connection between what the African-American choir was singing in church and what he had researched with psalm singing in the Hebrides. What a revelation for him. It was crazy. I mean, it's a hidden heritage. Psalm singing is pretty much dying out as Gaelic is uh, dying out as a language in Scotland. There was that kind of musical connection between people, and they were tapping their deepest feelings in Scotland, singing the Psalms. Yeah. What we miss in the singing of the Psalms in the monasteries is the emotion, because I think it's sung by rote. And kind of flat, like the point of chant singing is everybody blend in together. But here was the thing that was prompting uh, that sabbatical. I said, I only know probably six, seven, eight, nine Psalms, and there are 150. What are the other ones? And then to push it further, what would they sound like if they were set to music? And then picking up on a recurring word in the margin, stila, S-E-L-A-H, which the best scholarly opinion is that means there was music accompanying the words, but we had no way of recording it or documenting it. So it is lost to the ages. It the is, age. which is why the Psalms then in every generation get kind of rebooted to different uh, tunes and melodies. But I often think of it, too, uh, as this kind of recurring battle in religious communities between the uh, musicians and the preachers. And let me illustrate with a bad joke that I persist in telling preacher says one time to the the organist, you know, I have this point in the worship service where I have to move from the pulpit to the communion table. Could you play something quiet? And the organist says, no problem, Rev. In fact, I have to move from the organ bench to the piano at one point. Would you mind mumbling a few words? Yeah. It's this kind of battle. Who wins, the musician or the speaker? Uh, in the Bible, obviously the speaker won, the writer won, the you know the poets won. But there's this hidden tradition of music. What would these psalms sound like if one of them were were set to music? Let me be clear here that what we're talking about isn't the centuries worth of words set to music, but right. the music interpreting without the words of the psalm. Right, psalms without words. What would it sound like if there were a psalm? Uh, there's one, Psalm 63, the poet is saying, I thirst for God in a dry and dreary land. So I thought of this, and I spent a little time in the desert, and the melody came to mind. So this is Haunted Landscape.
So there is a tune called Haunted Landscape uh, from the Psalms, from the two CD set called Psalms Without Words, Bill Carter and the Presby Bop Quartet. There are 150 of these. Right. You haven't done all 150. No. During that sabbatical and months following, I composed about 34, 35, and re-recorded maybe 20-some on the double CD. I mean, you don't want to ruin a good thing. There's some kind of little parts of this. We'll do a deep dive maybe on this album in months to come. But there was, for instance, a Wayne Shorter tune that he wrote for Miles Davis called Pinocchio. Kind of an interesting tune. I love the harmony of it. And I came across a couple of psalms that talk about people of unclean lips. In the Bible, unclean lips is not uh, somebody who tells dirty jokes. It's a liar. So I thought, oh, Pinocchio, a liar. So I wrote a tune called Liars, and I'm dedicating it to all the politicians. (laughs) Let's hear a little bit of it. So remind me which psalm that is from? That's from Psalm 52. That's liars. And in our last episode, and kind of what prompted some of this reflection for me is we had a number of folks who commented on Heartsick, the lament when we bid farewell to our friend Al Ham. And they were saying, man, that was so sad. I said, well, it's Psalm 6. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, that's that's what that was. I'm not mimicking the words but I'm trying to tap the emotion. So Haunted Landscape, and then uh, obviously there are the blues from the Mm -hmm. Psalms. What about the joy of the Psalms, the the celebration, the praise? Well, that's where it it all goes. One of my favorite songs emerged during that Scotland trip. My wife and I were having eggs at the St. Columba Hotel one morning on the island of Iona, kind of mystical, magical island. I looked out the window and the morning was emerging. Everything, life was erupting. It was all kind of coming up. And I thought, man, it's all coming alive. And a melody came to mind. My honey looked at me and she said, uh, you, you got you got a tune. And I said, yeah. I said, do you have a napkin? <laughs> and, and she went and found a, a paper napkin and a pen. And I sketched out how I thought the melody would go. And a few days later, we were in the St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, and I found a piano and slipped over there before the minister yelled at me for doing this. But I, I found the melody to make sure I had it right. And I call that one Iona Morning. Yes. And it's from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a creation song. It has seven stanzas, one for each day of the week. 
and uh, it speaks about everything being brought alive. Let's hear a little bit of Iona Morning. So the tune for Iona Morning was sketched out on a napkin at a hotel on the Isle of Iona. That's right. And uh, there it is uh, from the Pressy Bob Quartet. Yeah, you've got to catch the tune when it comes. Yeah, we have to catch the morning when it comes, too. Well, and I think that says something about the the spirit of jazz. Uh, when When inspiration comes, can we dwell there for a minute, receive it, appreciate it, uh, let it wash over us? whether it's happy or whether it's sad. And that's part of what it means to be human. That's part of what it means to uh, have a spiritual dimension to our lives. It's a human honesty, and it's also shared that this is not done only in isolation or privately. Uh, the Psalms are often written in first-person singular, I, me, but they're shared among a community, so the community is participating in that experience. When we opened the program, you were referring to your earliest uh, encounter with the Psalms, and it reminded mm -hmm. me at that time of the very first memory verse that I recall. I'm sure that this was second or third grade. It was vacation. No, it wasn't vacation Bible school. It was released time education. Okay, <laughs> back when they did that. We'd leave school a little bit early. We'd go to this little Baptist church, which was next door to my house in, in upstate New York. And I remember, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of, of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And what occurs to me is, may the words of my mouth and the music of my heart be acceptable right. in thy sight, O Lord. Absolutely. When we think about what it means to be spiritual, it's kind of the whole package. 
Yeah. You know, it's not uh, some mystical floating off into the ether. It's um, this voice, this breath, this body, this community that I'm part of, all joining together and being honest before the holy, receiving inspiration, and then maybe perhaps doing something about it. You know, feeding the orphan, sheltering the widow, uh, those kind of calls to justice and neighborliness, which come up again and again. Now, one more uh, question about your, before we close, uh, your your psalms. Uh, often the psalms begin with a dark, I don't know, desperation, and then there's a turn in the psalm, and suddenly uh, everything seems bright again. The yeah. sun has come out. Have you done that musically? Probably. In the works of the the Psalms Without Words, uh, most of them just kind of establish a singular mood or tonality or, or sense. But there is a sweep from the beginning of the 150 Psalms to the last one. And when we get to the last one, the only verb in the Psalm is praise. Uh, praise okay. the Lord. Praise. And how do you praise God? You praise God with symbols and you praise God with dance and you praise God with stringed instruments. And so we we perceived this as kind of a second line New Orleans tune, early jazz tune, and this is a well. Let's hear it. Everybody dance.
So if you've been listening to everybody dance, you couldn't help but tap your feet and maybe dance a little bit wherever you are. That's a good way to close this Spirit of Jazz program. Thank you, Bill, for uh, taking us through this musical journey through jazz and the Psalms. We look forward to having you tune in for our next episode. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for listening to the Spirit of Jazz podcast. This is a production of Presby Bop Music. To find out more about Presby Bop, our music, concerts, and recordings, please explore our website at www.presbybop.com. And send us a note telling us what you think about the Spirit of Jazz. We'd love to hear from you. Check in with us again next time. I'm Jeff Kellum. And I'm Bill Carter. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>